Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, Anand Gritteris, author of Winners Take All, the elite charade of changing the world, just out from Knopf. Rich people's do-goodery doesn't attract enough critical attention. Perhaps because the journalists and academics who would normally do that sort of work don't want to alienate potential sources of funding. The roles of elite private foundations in shaping social science research and co-opting political activism are both profound but little remarked upon. For example, the Ford Foundation had a heavy hand in shaping race relations and our understanding of them in the U.S., shifting the focus, as Leah Gordon told us in a June 2015 appearance on Behind the News, from power to prejudice, from structural concerns like the power of money and control of the state to individual psychology and feelings. Ford has also been all over U.S. foreign policy for decades, from aiding Suharto's coup in Indonesia, to training the economists who serve Pinochet in Chile, to co-opting community organizers in South Africa. Similar things can be said of names like Rockefeller and Carnegie, who worked to limit the militancy of the political left at home and abroad. More recently, a fresh approach to do-goodery has arisen among the nouveau riche, not philanthropy in the traditional sense, pots of money administered by semi-independent program officers, but a more directly business-inspired approach. Now we've got Mark Zuckerberg and hedge fund guys running school reform pretty directly, and we've got businesses who think that their activities can do good in themselves. Doing well by doing good has become a mantra for this new class with their B corporations and their triple bottom lines. Theory and practice are worked out at august forums like Davos and TED Talks, which feature only the finest thought leaders. Strangely, none of these approaches, either that of traditional philanthropy or of this new age kind, suggest anything like a challenge to rule by the rich. Quite the contrary. By taking the edge off that rule and by giving an impression of caring, they hope to sustain and reinforce it. As I said, it's hard to find much critical thinking about any of these structures. For-profit publishers are little interested for frank class reasons, and most non-profit outfits, like, say, NPR, aren't either because they're part of the problem. Anand Garuders' book, Winners Take All, is a distinguished exception. It's a highly intelligent, sharply observed critical look at the newer ways of doing good, the more nakedly business and entrepreneur-driven sort as opposed to traditional Ford Rockefeller-style philanthropy. Anand Garuders is a journalist based in Brooklyn. His previous books include India Calling, an intimate portrait of a nation's remaking, and The True American, Murder and Mercy in Texas, a study of capital punishment. Long ago, he did a stint with McKinsey, the global consulting firm whose approach to business has become a template for this new style of doing good. Anand Gariteris. Personal testimony is uh, very important in what you call market world. Uh, your own bio, McKinsey, TED, Aspen Institute, says that you come from that world or at least have passed through it. Uh, you even impressively got a blurb from Bill Gates. How'd you get from there to here? I'm a writer and, and quite removed in many ways from the world of super billionaires that I ended up writing about. But I became interested in this when, in part, you know, as an observation of my society, that I saw that we were living in this age in which there was all kinds of elite generosity all around us and people signing the giving pledge and giving their fortunes away and, um, you know, young elite graduates of the best universities uh, all being interested in changing the world and making a difference. But at the same time, this age of historic uh, gaping inequality. And I became interested in how it could be that we had so many people and such profound problems. And could it be that those those rich people were uh, perhaps causing the very problems they, they claimed to solve, not paying people enough, not paying their taxes, evading regulations, making a lot of money because of that, and then turning around and, and throwing it back at us. Um, and and, and I, I became interested in, in how to tell that story. The, the more specific experience I had that, that kind of helped me see how to do it and how it sort of worked was I was invited as a writer into this peculiar fellowship, peculiar for me, um, it was a fellowship called the Henry Crown Fellowship at the Aspen Institute. And it was one of these many fellowships in our time that aimed to kind of business people and make them think about giving back and making a difference and making change. Uh, this particular fellowship was geared at business people, and I was not a business person, but but they would always throw a couple of of uh, uh, a little bit of a different perspective into each class, and I was that uh, they that they tried to inject. And so I was in this program, and the Aspen Institute's this kind of amazing amazing place in Aspen, Colorado, and beautiful campus, and all these rich and powerful people gather there to talk about how to make things better. And you know, 
it was often under the sponsorship of Pepsi and Monsanto or, or with Goldman Sachs sponsoring the summer union, sitting in the Koch brothers building, you know, talking about how to revive democracy or so on and so forth. And I started to become convinced that instead of the people in this room being the solution to the problems of the age, it was perhaps possible that these well-intentioned, often earnest and kind people coming together to talk about changing the world were the problem. And I was asked to give a speech to the group, and I sort of surprised them by actually giving a speech in which I said just that, that we gather here thinking we're the solution to the world's problems, but what if elites like the people in this room are the reason we have these problems? And what would it look like to actually have uh, real solutions to these problems through American self-government um, and not rich people throwing scraps down from the mountaintop? Yes, I'm reminded I sat in a conference a few years ago uh, at uh, up at the Rockefeller Estate in Westchester uh, under some Picasso tapestries in this house that Carbon built, and we're talking about climate change and the poor, and I was just <laughs> struck by what a strange situation that was. You write about a thing you call market world uh, and its philosophy of win-win-ism. Uh, could you define those things for us? Yeah, market world is a complex of people and institutions that believe that it is possible, elite people and elite institutions that believe it's possible to both do good and do well, that believe that you can do well by doing good and do good by doing well, that you can kind of make a difference in the lives of the poor while also making a killing, um, that you can change the world for others while also making sure that your own world doesn't change um, as a privileged person, that you can, um, that you can, you know, fight for the least among us while clinging to a system that keeps you on top and predictably, reliably, foreseeably shuts most people out. Um, and this is a group of people who that spans, you know, billionaires signing the giving pledge all the way down to those college graduates deciding what to do with their lives and deciding to go to J.P. Morgan because that's where they have been convinced that they can learn to make real change. It encompasses the conference circuit of TED and Aspen and Davos and all these places where you know, millionaires and billionaires sit in the audience while thinkers stand there hoping to keep earning their patronage by by talking about the problems of the world in ways that don't accuse the winners of our age and that, that respect them and don't shame them and cast them as being part of the solution, not part of the problem. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of vast, vast territory market world is. And it is fueled, as you said, by this ideology of the win-win which is, it's kind of a, a variant of the old Adam Smith, you know, leave rich people alone because just them doing them will, will create prosperity for the society. Win-win is a new, more strident idea that has taken hold in our time. That rich people, people who've succeeded in business, are actually the most capable solvers of problems and doers of things. And it should be they who not only run businesses, but think about how our schools should be, think about how to fix the American opportunity structure, think about how to fight poverty, think about how to empower women. And we kind of live in the grips of an age in which we are at risk of confusing Sheryl Sandberg for a feminist thinker and confusing you know, Mark Zuckerberg for an education reformer or one man substitute for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and con you know, risk confusing kind of Mike Bloomberg for a climate change policy. Yeah, we've outsourced a lot of our change making to billionaires as our conventional public problem solving has withered, but withered because billionaires and business interests have spent the last 30 or 40 years uh, waging a war on it and causing it to wither. A cornerstone belief of this world is that the skills and worldview uh, techniques one learns in the world of business are a template one can apply to solving social problems, right? Yeah, there's, there's kind of this idea that business is the universal access code of intelligence. In some ways, there has been a view espoused by the business world and adopted by many that a certain kind of business training is basically akin to what the liberal arts have always been framed as for the last, you know, many hundred years, that the, the idea that a certain kind of general purpose training in the humanities or reading of certain kinds of general books and, and various subjects is the kind of training one needs to be a citizen, to be a thoughtful person in the world. And in some ways, 
the business world has made this counter pitch of business skills are the the equivalent of liberal arts for like getting things done. And at some level, this is preposterous because there's all kinds of people who get things done who are not business people. You know, airline pilots get things done. Spies get things done. Public school teachers get things done. People who, you know, ship captains get things done. Uh, and they, and all of those professions have interesting frameworks and ways of organizing reality and ways of separating the signal from the noise and ways of prioritizing and way of triaging and and so on. And yet we have been kind of taught that a certain kind of business skill is the universal passport for making things better. Um, and it's a very unfortunate idea that has had dramatic success in orienting lots and lots of young people, often our best and brightest young people, to business instead of public service and, and other things that would kind of tend to the common uh, common life and common institutions of our society. Now, what you're describing is an ideology that has uh, taken over uh, the mainstream of the Democratic Party and similar formations around the world, really. You know, the, the Blairite Labor Party, now now in remission. Some of the continental social democratic parties have, have embraced this kinds of thinking. We can understand how the right is just let the market do everything. But the innovation over the last, uh, I don't know, 25, 30 some years is that uh, this has become the dominant ideology of people who used to be considered liberals or Democrats. Yeah, I mean, I think what what is obvious is there was a war waged by the right against government, and everybody knows that history and knows that story. And you and everybody knows Ronald Reagan standing up and saying government's not the solution, government's the problem, and Margaret Thatcher saying, you know, there's there's no such thing as society. There's only men and women and families, and families must look to themselves first. Those kind of things. And we know the Koch brothers and and other business interests pushed that agenda and funded institutes and 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 you know we we understand that fox news emerged from that and, and so i think we're aware of a right-wing war on the idea of government and the idea essentially on the fundamental truth about government which is that the government is us the government is you know what we do together what i think is less understood is that the political right would never have been able to pull off that revolution without a loyal opposition. And one of the dynamics that emerges when you win a revolution is that everybody is playing on the new turf that you've created. And the political right was so successful in its war against government that everybody in American life today, since the 80s, you could say, has been playing on its field. Now, you may be on the other side of its field in opposition to the forces of the anti-government right. But you're still playing on its field. And so when Bill Clinton says the era of big government's over, it's not because he hates government or maybe even deeply believes that. It's because he's playing on the field of a revolution that has been successful at making many people think government is the enemy. When Barack Obama took office and as one of the first you know, new offices, he created the Office of Social Innovation, uh, the website said top-down programs from Washington don't work anymore. A, a preposterous and untrue claim. Again, that's what it looks like when when people on the left absorb almost like secondhand smoke the ideology, kind of anti-government ideology of the right. This reminds me of a quote from uh, Matthew Dowd, uh, former uh, George W. Bush advisor, who said, uh, if you argue against us while using our language, we're winning. It seems that's uh, this is another episode of that. Right, that's a great way to put it. I'm speaking with Anand Gurdaras, author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, just out from Knopf. This ideology that you refer to has certain limits. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this quote from Branko Milanovic, uh, economist, uh, one of the world's leading experts in income distribution. But he said, uh, I was at a think tank in Washington, uh, I believe it was one of the Carnegie uh, uh, Institutes. The president of the think tank told me, you can do whatever you want, but just don't call it inequality. Put the word poverty in there. Because we have many rich people on our board and they see the word poverty, it makes them feel good because it means they're really nice people who care about the poor. When they see the word inequality, it makes them upset because it means you want to take money from them. Is that uh, the kind of worldview you're talking about? Yeah. In fact, I, I quote one of the guys who is in the leadership of the TED conference, and he, he makes that same point, which is, uh, and I think it's worth teasing out because it maps onto a kind of deeper structure here, which is 
you know, poverty, the words poverty and equality are not the same. But when we're trying to solve them, we're often referring to helping the same people, the same communities or the same, you know, there, there's a there's a resonance there. And it's often, in all practical terms, the same set of issues and same areas of work. So what is different about call, saying I want to work on poverty versus saying I want to work on inequality? Well, poverty is entirely about the people you're trying to help. And there's no other players in that drama. It is exclusively a drama about the people being helped. And you're the one helping them. You're the one making it better. And so that is a role that, that, that when you talk about poverty, it puts rich people into a place where they're purely helpers. When you talk about inequality, before you even get to the help and what do you do, you're describing a situation that is relational rather than just a description of where the poor are. You're describing a situation where some have and others don't. And that starts to raise a question of whether they have because the others don't or whether the others don't have because they do. And in other words, that's a way of looking at some of the same people, same communities, same problems, but in a way that is systemic and in a way that is, that is, a, that is pointing fingers and willing to name names and, and, and lay blame. And that is precisely what the winners of our age refuse. They are willing to help. They're willing to solve problems. They're willing to contribute to making a fairer world. But what they insist on in turn is that your way of solving it will not accuse them. We'll bring them along. We'll ask their consent. We'll actually give them power over how we do the solution. And we'll never tell them that they are part of the problem, um, which is why in many ways giving is a purchase rather than a, a, a surrender because what they're purchasing through that giving is a kind of immunity from questions about how they made the money and the kind of system that they uphold that causes these problems. I believe you quote uh, a venture capitalist as saying, uh, if we throw some income at them, we kind of bribe them uh, so they don't overthrow us. Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, I was surprised. I was uh, with Vinod Kosla, the billionaire venture capitalist in Silicon Valley in his, in his nice uh, purple-themed uh, offices. And we're kind of talking about, he, he said something that, that I found really fascinating. He's a, he said, you know, he, and he is someone who in many ways has been more vocal on the fact that that a lot of the rich people around him are living in a in a bubble and don't understand the anger around them. So, so he's been he's tried to be up front on that issue. And he said to me, what a lot of people don't understand is that capitalism exists by permission of democracy. And I and that kind of just made me think for a second. Capitalism exists by permission of democracy. I said, what do you mean by that? He says, well, you know, if you you can have your capitalism, you can have your nice fund over here. But if you if you don't, if you, you know, if you're, if you're creating a situation where 95 percent of people can't live a decent life and, that, you know, they're going to they're going to revolt. And we kind of both looked over to the window of this long conference room, beautiful office. And I said, like, it would just seem very physical. Suddenly I was like, yeah, like people are going to come through that window. And he said, yeah, they're going to they're going to come through that window if you create a world through capitalism where most people are doomed. And so he said, you know, so therefore you have to use democracy to kind of essentially bribe enough people to to kind of leave you alone. Now, that's not my view. I mean, I, I, I think we need to aim bigger for democracy than, than bribing people to leave venture capitalists alone. But I think it gets at something very important that he understands that a lot of rich people don't, which is this idea that capitalism does exist by permission of democracy. Um, we try. Treat capitalism is a natural thing, but it's not. We give companies charters to be companies. We give that to them. They don't have to give that to them. Uh, we could ask for whatever we want in those charters. We give them limited liability. We give them the regulations and contract law that allow them to make their plans and make their deals. We could change any of that. All of that, all of what they build is on top of what we share in common. And so th there's an idea in American life that what business people do is natural. And the society's efforts to regulate it are unnatural and ex post facto. And I think we just need to flip that around. The idea of capitalism exists by permission of democracy suggests that, in fact, what is more natural, well, the, you got the state of nature, and then you got people coming together to create a political community. And then capitalism actually flourishes once we have a set of institutions that allows you to, like, buy potatoes for your french fry company um knowing that if the supplier doesn't actually send the potatoes you can sue them in court 
there's no business anywhere in the world where you don't know that you could sue the guy in court, where 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 there's no protection in case the person who sells your shares on Wall Street turns out to be a charlatan, et cetera, et cetera. Capitalism exists on top of infrastructure that we share in common, and we need to do a much better job than we have as a society in using that as leverage and asking for what we want um, when we extend that to companies. Even the most extreme libertarian would agree uh, that uh, an essential role of government uh, in supporting capitalism is uh, enforcing contracts. But uh, where they will uh, uh, depart from that is uh, when you start talking about using government uh, to uh, ameliorate social problems, redistribute income, uh, you know, uh, constrain the behavior of, uh, of those capitalists. But the kinds of people you're writing about are not those sorts of extreme libertarians. They're not, you know, Patrick Friedman uh, writing in the Cato uh, Journal a few years ago where he said capitalism uh, is in, incompatible with democracy. Libertarianism, rather, is in, incompatible with democracy. They have ideas of uh, ameliorating social problems, but their approach to these things uh, follows a certain model, right? Uh, they don't really want... Um, very broad overhaul. I, I noticed uh, some Google dude the other day said we need to do something that will um, improve the lives of about 100,000 people. Um, but you know, he's not interested in unions, which would change the balance of power involving millions of people. He's like looking at little initiatives that are going to change the lives of a few hundred thousand people. What, what is the, the, the model of, of social change that the kinds of uh, uh, people in market world uh, you wrote about? What is their, what is their model of, of, of social change, of ameliorating social problems? Rich people's idea of change is change that doesn't threaten rich people. So what I found is that on every major public policy question of our time, particularly the areas where I think you could say this country is most in need of real change. What rich people do is proffer a, a kind of counteroffer to real change, right? So you take public education. It's pretty clear that there's no justification for funding public education the way we do, which is according to the home values in your neighborhood. It's hard to come up with a rationale for why it's fair to give a six-year-old an education based on who had the nicest house. So we know that. But fixing that issue that way at the level that I'm talking about would, while it would help tens of millions of people, um, it would also solve it in ways that hurt rich people, right? It would, it would make the public schools in Greenwich and Marin fall to the level of the average, which is the case in many rich countries. Um, it would mean that rich people no longer got better public schools than other people. And that would be painful for them. It would also hurt their home prices. I mean, in some of these neighborhoods, 20, 30% of the home value is that really good public school that you therefore don't need to send your kid to private school you know, for. And that's, that's the kind of change that rich people can't believe in. And so therefore, what will happen, and this is sometimes unconscious and sometimes conscious, is that they will make a, a, a counteroffer, um, you know, what I call a counteroffer, which is, gosh, this public education problem is so terrible. Why don't we create a charter school in our city? I mean, it won't be near our neighborhood because we wouldn't want those kids near us, but let's create it, you know, five, seven, ten miles away. We'll create a charter school on the other side of town, far away from us. And, you know, and we'll mentor those minority kids. And, you know, and you may have someone who works in finance boasting to his or her friends that, you know, oh, these three black boys that I mentored um, at this charter school and I feel so good about it and, you know, all of that. Why is that an appealing solution? You seem like you're helping. You are helping. You're going to meet these kids that you're helping. You're going to see and, and encounter them and know that you did make a difference in their lives. But you are able to change things in ways that don't, don't, don't change anything at all for you, that, don't, that, keep, that protect your privileges. And that's a huge, uh, a huge advantage. That was part one of an interview with Anand Garidris, author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, just out from Knopf. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
That was some of Kuliokanth by the Italian composer Giacinto Schelsi. Schelsi, born in 1905, grew up in a castle where a private tutor taught him Latin, chess, and fencing. That's a curriculum rather different from the charter schools we'll hear about at the end of the program. And now back to Anand Gritteris, author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, just out from Knopf. You have an amusing chapter on uh, the thinkers, uh, the house thinkers of market world, uh, these uh, thought leaders rather than uh, um, public intellectuals. Uh, What does it take to be a thought leader? Clipping your intellectual wings. You know, one of the things that I concluded with my reporting, I spent a lot of time in these worlds and really tried to get under the skin of people who are these elites who are trying to change things without having their world change. And one of my conclusions was that these are in general good people, decent people, and they're sincere in their efforts to make things better, which makes it all the more surprising that they're so unable to risk themselves and their position and sacrifice to actually make things better. And I became interested in how is it that so many decent people are upholding an indecent system? How is that possible? And the missing link between decent people and an indecent system is bad ideas, limited ideas, ideas of self-justification. And what I realized was a lot of these decent people need someone to tell them that the kind of fake change or change light that they promote is good enough. They need someone to reassure them because they're smart people who, if they really think about it, probably understand that a charter school in their town is not the same as equal public schools for everybody. But they need someone to tell them that it's enough, that it's good enough, that just helping those few is is plenty. And so that's where you get the kind of court thinkers who I call thought thought leaders. Others, Daniel Dresner and others have, have referred to them in the same terms. And a thought leader is like a public intellectual, except not at all. Public intellectuals were... You know, these thinkers really challenged power. James Baldwin was, a, you know, an iconic public uh, intellectual. You think of any of the great feminist theorists, um, Simone de Beauvoir and others. I mean, these are real thinkers who wrote for a mix of intellectuals and regular people and who challenged power and our understandings of how the world works. A thought leader is someone who does not do that. Someone who talks about many things, including the great problems of our age, but in ways that clip the wings of the diagnosis in ways that turn issues of inequality into issues of poverty, that turn issues of, you know, what kind of social policy do we need for women into lean in, um, that kind of denude the big issues of our time of their political bite and actually try to recast them as being personal dilemmas that people can solve by leaning in or working a little harder in school. Um, And so, if they do that, if they are managed to kind of talk about the problems of our age in these kind of more winner-friendly ways, they'll find they're invited back, they're put on a lecture circuit, they're paid a lot of money for talks. And so slowly you get um, a large crop of serious thinkers who end up taking the route of thought leadership because it pays the bills and who make that bargain of basically becoming unthreatening uh, to power. We're now seeing quite a rebellion against this mode of thought. Uh, Donald Trump defeating Hillary Clinton, uh, a very uh, headline example of that. Hillary Clinton, uh, a real exemplar of the kind of thinking you're talking about. She and Bill helped create or did a lot to create the modern Democratic Party, the market-friendly Democratic Party. She personally worked with uh, Tony Blair to internationalize the whole third-way movement. The Clinton Foundation and the Global Initiative are really um, at the core of this approach to uh, the world and its problems. Uh, what about this now revolution, uh, Trump, Brexit, and the kinds of uh, turn to the right we're seeing in continental Europe? How are the people of market world processing this? How do they understand it? They understand their contribution uh, to this rebellion. You know, it was very interesting. I mean, one of the, the final chapter of the book is about Bill Clinton trying to make sense of this. And I, I saw him twice. I first saw him, I, I reported from the final CGI which took place um, in a very interesting moment, a couple months after Brexit and a couple months before Hillary's defeat. And so it was that moment when elites like him and the kind of people he has around him at CGI had reason to know that, that maybe a tide was turning and things were changing, but also the, full, the fullness of it hadn't, hadn't materialized yet. And 
it was very interesting. I mean, my, one of my takeaways from CGI, I mean, a, a lot of the conversation in that summer of 20, sorry, fall of 2016, um, exactly two years ago this month, was, God, why are all these people so angry about everything we believe in? Why are they so angry about globalism? Why are they so angry about trade and openness and whatever? And those were good questions to have in, in September 2016. However, the way they answered them was in this kind of condescending, you know, they're provincial, the people who voted for Brexit were fooled, they're easily misled sheep kind of framework. Like, they didn't have anybody on stage to answer those questions. The basket of deplorables uh, analysis. Right. And, and, and look, like, I think part of what's complicated is, but when you look at Brexit or Trump, like, in the coalition and in those campaigns, there was an enormous amount of deplorability. Like, let's be real. There was an enormous amount of racism and hatred and white nationalism and all this other stuff that has no place in civilized society. However, it was also mingled with some intuitions that are correct about an age in which elites have kind of rich explained to people about how all the changes of our time were going to be good for everybody when in fact they were not. Um, and I think one of the difficulties was because there was so much racism and hatred and, and, and deplorable behavior within these movements. Um, a lot of the elites who were in a good position to actually think carefully about what was going on, their eyes went entirely to what was deplorable and they didn't really engage with the critique seriously. And so, you know, after CGI, I actually called up Danny Roderick, who's this professor at Harvard. And as he says, you know, I'm as globalist, the globalist as they come. But I said, you know, tell me what these people are not seeing. Like, what's the best if you if you could have been there to tell them what, you know, the people that that they would never even invite, the kind of people who are angry at this world. How would you explain it to them? And he said, you know, there's this feeling that people have that they're not shaping the societies they live in. And some people are feeling that because of racial change and because of feelings that we may be less sympathetic to. And others are feeling that because of issues of trade. And others are feeling that because, you know, automation and, and just our changing structure of our economy and having to work for companies that are owned by a hedge fund, which is owned by a private equity firm, which is owned by, you know, a Brazilian crypto billionaire, whatever. Like, it's a very confusing time. And a lot of these people, Danny Roderick talked about how they kind of had a they they put a moral glow on globalism and you know globalism was cooperation and and like not hating people and and wanting to deal with others and therefore anybody raising questions about trade technology globalization you know and the policies that underpin them was basically like a racist or a provincial and what i found was that there was total blindness to what was going on and look, I'm not one of these people who, you know, says you got we got to understand this because we got to do like, you know, deep empathy circles for Trump voters. I'm one of the people who wants to understand Trump voters so I can beat them. Um, and I think there was just a lack of a willingness to, like, understand what was going on. Then after Hillary lost several months later, I spent time with Bill Clinton one on one to talk about what I'd seen at TGI and interview him for the book. And that was very interesting because, again, I mean, he was obviously processing this result, which was a repudiation of everything that they believe. And in many ways, I think he was always a, an even more unreserved defender of globalization and, and, and trade in this kind of open world. I mean, I think she had slightly different and, and more, in some ways, more pro-government views on some of that stuff. And I just found it hard for him to actually process not just his own blind spots, but the complicity of many of the rich people that he brought together and so famously elevated as solving the world's problems. The idea that those people might have been part of how those problems were caused and allowed to fester over the last generation was something that was just too hard for him and too painful for him to even kind of acknowledge. I'm speaking with Anand Gurdras, author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, just out from Knopf. It's funny, you know, the contrast with uh, FDR and the New Deal is striking because Roosevelt emerged out of the elite and uh, was had the uh, the confidence to step on their toes. Uh, where you look at people like the two Clintons uh, and Obama emerge from modest origins, uh, in Bill's case, quite poor origins, and rose through the meritocratic world and uh, came to admire uh, 
rich people and not have, he did not welcome their hatred the way FDR did. Um, is there some kind of problem of leadership here? Yeah, I mean, I, I, one of the things I talk about is this idea of uh, we, need, we need more privileged people being traitors to their class the way FDR was. And we need more rich people willing to, you know, whether it's political leaders who've, who've had luck or, or, or business leaders who have a lot of money, being willing to say, look, I am safe enough and secure enough as a person that I'm going to use my privilege to interrogate the system through which I ascended. And we don't have that as much as we should. So what we end up with is a pattern where people kind of rise up through these structures. And then once they become successful, they basically seek the kind of change that walls, you know, builds a wall um, around their own privileges. And I think what FDR did was help build a kind of America that was not good for people like him. It was not good for the kind of rich people that he came from, that frankly built... Um, built a nation of shared institutions and shared systems at the expense of tremendous privilege. If you just look at the share of income held by the top 1%, which is like the social world he came from, it totally crashed after um, not just the Great Depression, but also his policies and, and didn't really reverse until the mid-80s, thanks to Reagan. Um, through much of that period, the top 1% held somewhere in the you know, 12, 13, 14% of the nation's income. Now it's back up to where it was before, which is 25%. Those are two very different Americas. Um, and by the way, rich people still have a lot of stuff in the, in, in the kind of FDR America. But one of the things when talking about FDR, FDR that's interesting is, you know, I think there are these great cycles in American history where, as Arthur Schlesinger called them, and if you lived in the 30s through the kind of 70s, whoever was president, Republican or Democrat, you lived in FDR's world. You were playing on his field. And I think if you've lived at any time in America since the 80s, you've been living on Reagan's field. And I think the question is, the thing that actually fills me with excitement these days is I think Trump is discrediting the idea of rich people as our saviors. And I wonder whether we're on the verge of another one of those pivots to a new cycle that is decades long and and defined by a kind of quest for social reform and and the repair of our deep systems and not just you know cupcake companies that give back yeah i was going to ask this where are we going from here you know as you put it uh trump is um, discrediting um his whole world um he comes out of a like a smash and grab uh, kind of capitalism private equity and all those people uh, very well represented uh among uh, trump's crowd or the the republican party at the same time, you know, the, uh, the, the third way Democrats, uh, and their nonprofits and all that are also deeply discredited. Uh, the Hillary's loss is a rejection of that whole worldview. And they're kind of wandering around, uh, looking for a new way to be. We're seeing also the you know, Democratic Socialists of America now hitting 50,000 members and, uh, certainly some incumbents are doing okay, but you know, the insurgency bubbling up for the bottom of the Democratic Party, or at least the bottom of the ballot. Uh, where, where do you see these things going in the coming years? I mean, let me say this kind of counterintuitively, because I, I think it's easy to think about all the stuff you said as being in conflict with each other and these different factions being in conflict. I think the way I sometimes look at it is, although we are in a very, very dark moment in American life, and it's hard to think about a darker moment in my lifetime than this moment, I think we're also at a very create a moment of great creative possibility in American politics. And the reason I say that is there's a lot of weird stuff happening and there's a big hunger for transformative change. And it's often from people on the opposite sides of things, but we have to step back and look at the fact that alliances may switch and people and t teams may change and the nature of the schism itself may, may be altered. And so when you have a Republican president, as awful as he is in my view, who ran somewhat against Wall Street and against the global financial elite that didn't care about working class people, that was revolutionary for a Republican. And it was partly because he was not beholden to the, the party establishment the same way. That was important. Just, just because he didn't honor it and has made no use of it and, in fact, has done the opposite, didn't mean that he didn't say that and it, and it didn't point to an interesting political possibility. What it tells me is there's a group of people, Republican voters, 
who are up for the idea that the global financial elite is actually our problem. Um, that's good. That's useful. That's good to know. Then you have the DSA, which is doing what it's doing. And that's not going to work everywhere, and that's probably not going to be a national strategy. But I think what they're showing is that when you actually build credibility in communities, you build local chapters, you create worlds of people who know each other and come into contact with each other, you organize, you're actually able to take an idea that we may have thought was you know, a no-go in American life and make it surprisingly successful. Then you have the non-DSA but very progressive folks like Beto or uh, Andrew Gillum in Florida, who I think are, by virtue of the fact that they're you know, polling where they are at a statewide races in relatively conservative places, uh, I think shows you that we didn't necessarily know our country as well as we thought. There are people out there who are open to diagnoses and prescriptions that are frankly outside of what's been in the democratic mainstream for a while you know and then you have the identity conversation that's that's happening in the party which again is easy to minimize and dismiss but i think is profoundly important i think what me too has done is important i think the questions of the you know empowerment message for women that hillary clinton's campaign spread was incredibly positive and i think suggests a possibility of you know mobilizing women as a force in american life that you're seeing one cycle later come into fruition and all these women running for office. In other words, I add all those up instead of subtract them from each other and say, we're at a moment of great ferment where we're talking about issues of identity and belonging in ways that are new. We are seeing people run on platforms and win or do well in conservative places that is new. We're seeing socialists organize successfully in American life in a way that, you know, for the first time in 100 years and with this seriousness. Um, and we're seeing a Republican Party that's trying to figure out whether it's pro-trade or anti-trade, pro-worker, anti-worker, that's struggling in ways that suggest that some voters are up for poaching. And so I think this is going to be a period where really creative, dynamic politicians will be able to assemble coalitions that will be very surprising. Trump is, a, is just a bad man. And that can distract us from the fact that he built a very weird platform and he won't be the only one. It is possible for good people, I think, to come in and say, what is a certain amount of populism look like, but anchoring it in pluralism and tolerance and the empowerment of, of minorities and women? What does it look like to champion workers in ways that also you know, honor America's history of flourishing entrepreneurship, et cetera, et cetera. I think we're in a very ripe moment if we have the right young, dynamic leaders able and wise enough to to seize on these possibilities. I was Anand Gariteris, author of Winners Take All, The Elite Trade of Changing the World, just out from Knopf. Since we have a little time left over and the topic of charter schools came up, I thought I'd play an excerpt from an interview I did in May 2011 with Terry Moe, a professor of political science at Stanford and a fellow of its right-wing Hoover Institution. Moe is one of the intellectual authors of market-driven education reform. He hates teachers' unions and loves charter schools. And although he believes that public school teachers get no better after five years' experience, he's been at Stanford for 32. That aside, Moe's bluntness here is a refreshing antidote to TED Talk-style cheerleading. I happened to be reading some uh, Thomas Jefferson ed ed education uh, the other day, and uh, he, he was very explicit in advocating different paths for what he called laborers and thinkers. And I can't shake the suspicion that a lot of these kinds of reform proposals are uh, intended for the laborers and the thinkers uh, will go to different kinds of schools. Uh, for example, I really, well, the president, for example, sends his children to Sidwell Friends, which is a very polished and expensive yep. school. The children of Wall Street hotshots uh, go to St. Anne's School in Brooklyn, you know, $26,000 a year. Mm -hmm. uh, is this really a kind of, I don't know, management of the lower orders uh, in an order, effort to like, contain kids for 12 years? educate them cheaply and then unleash them onto a job market where they're not expected to do very much. And what, whereas the children of the elite will continue to go to very progressive, very personalized, uh, uh, much lower tech kinds of schools. Well, I don't know. You're, you're laying it out as though it's some kind of grand capitalist conspiracy, you know, when it's not. You know, this is a system with 14,000 school districts. 
it's as decentralized as they come. You know, uh, uh, the, the the feds have a hand in it. The states have you know fifty hands in it. It's a mess. You know, and and in some uh, important sense, nobody's really in charge of the thing. And it just is what it is, you know, and, and people pay taxes and the schools get funded and, you know, the schools aren't great, but some of them are, are great, but most of them are not. Uh, in the cities, they're terrible. And I think everybody wants them to be better, you know, uh, but we're already paying a lot of money for what we have. I think that's the reality. I don't think it's some kind of capitalist conspiracy. And in any country where you have people that have a lot of money, they're going to just do what they want. You know, and unless you pass a law saying they can't do it, you know, and that's not going to happen. So I agree with you. You know that the the elites they have better everything, you know, than than the rest of us do. They just do, you know. Uh, that's just the way it is. And when people like you and I can't change that, <laughs> well, there are ways to change that, but that's another conversation. Well, it's not going to happen. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was Terry Moe, professor of political science at Stanford and fellow of its Hoover Institution from a May 2011 interview. And now a few of my own words about this new style of philanthropy from my book on Hillary Clinton, My Turn. After kicking around the Clinton Foundation as a shakedown and influence peddling operation, I took a look at its alleged good works. Here goes. Clinton fans counter all this smelly stuff by arguing that the foundation does good work, pointing with special pride to its initiatives on AIDS in Africa. It's indisputable that some good has come about as a result of the Foundation's projects, but overall, its impact points to profound structural limitations of the philanthropic approach to social problems, a strategy promoted by the neoliberal stripping of the state of its better functions and passing off the business of amelioration to Foundation program officers. According to the audited financial statements of the Clinton Health Access Initiative, CHI, the part of the many armed enterprises that carries out the AIDS work, Total program expenses in 2013, the most recent year available, were $99 million, up from $69 million the previous year. Of the total 2013 program spending, almost $31 million went to salaries, and just $2 million for procurement, less than for office expenses. Chai's net assets increased by 42% between 2012 and 2013 to $36 million. It's not clear why an entity focused on improving the health of the very poor needs such a large stash of assets relative to expenses. The financial statements don't break out spending by disease. Programs to address tuberculosis, malaria, and other maladies are included in the total. According to Chai's tax return, the enterprise spent just short of $30 million in AIDS. If the AIDS procurement expenditures are similar to their overall share of the initiative's overall spending, something like $600,000 was devoted to purchasing drug supplies. The small sums spent on procurement reflect the initiative's emphasis on negotiating lower drug prices rather than providing the drugs themselves. In a note included in the financial statements, it claims to have helped more than 8.2 million people in 70 countries since its founding in 2002, generating $1 billion in savings between 2011 and 2015 alone. Just how these people were helped and how they were counted is not disclosed. Chai also engages in classically Clinton-esque micro-initiatives, like improving supply chains, facilitating bulk purchases, and identifying high-impact interventions. It's all reminiscent of Bill's budget documents, where the prose was full of grand statements about investing in people, but the sums were barely visible when you scrutinized the numbers. The initiative's $100 million overall and $30 million spent on AIDS is not a lot of money. Contrast this with Clinton's successor, the deservedly maligned George W. Bush, who nonetheless made a large U.S. government commitment to fighting AIDS in poor countries, mainly in Africa. The president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, PEPFAR, was begun in 2003 with $15 billion in funding for the next three years, which Congress subsequently raised to $18.8 billion. It brought antiretroviral therapy to $2 million with HIV and provided care to $10 million. Between 2004 and 2008, it supported prevention of mother-to-child HIV transmission in nearly 16 million pregnancies. In 2008, the program was granted another $39 billion with a goal of treating at least 3 million people, caring for 12 million, and preventing 12 million new infections. Surprisingly, perhaps, Barack Obama cut PEPFAR funding significantly, even though his first Secretary of State, Hillary in other words, publicly declared that achieving an AIDS-free generation was a policy priority. Chai may do good work, but there's just no comparison between what a philanthropy can do and what a well-organized, well-funded public program with on the order of 60 times Chai's funding, is able to achieve. Bush's PEPFAR saved millions of lives. Chai cannot make anything remotely like that claim. And those were my words from my turn, Hillary Clinton targets the presidency.
That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some more 20th century viola music, this by Dmitry Shostakovich, his last composition, performed by Annette Bartoli and Julius Drake. Till next week, bye.